0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Good afternoon, Selena Green back with you today for The Country Hour. Now, if you are someone who has concerns about the government's proposed biosecurity levy, we'll stick around because some changes have just been announced to that and you'll find out what they are in a moment. Once you hear what those changes are, let me know what you think on my talkback number, which is 1300 222 891, or send me a text to 0467 922 891. Also coming up, how much stock do you put into long-term forecasts and how much do they play into your decision-making? Well, at least one livestock consultant is urging farmers to ignore them.
2: We don't have great skill in predicting El Nino events uh, that early in the season. Midwinter, yes, but not early in autumn, <laughs> certainly not late summer.
1: As I said, that's to come. But first, today, the federal government has agreed to change the way it taxes farmers to pay for biosecurity. The government's been under pressure from the Farm Lobby about plans to tax farmers to pay for services like mail and passenger detect- detection services. The biosecurity levy is yet to be legislated, but the Ag Minister murray Watts says it will be a fairer way and now set according to an industry's average share of farm, forestry and fisheries production over a rolling three-year period. Here he is announcing the changes at Parliament House this morning.
3: In the last budget the Albanese government introduced Australia's first ever sustainable biosecurity funding model that delivers one billion dollars over the next four Mm. years in new funding for our essential biosecurity services. This includes government funding of 350 million dollars and 363 million dollars from importers, an increase of hundreds of millions of dollars under the Albanese government as well as a modest and direct contribution from those who directly benefit from Australia's strong biosecurity system. The biosecurity protection levy will contribute just 6% of the total funding model, or about $50 million a year. The department has undertaken extensive consultation over the back half of last year, including stakeholder meetings, a survey of industry, as well as inviting submissions to be made. We've listened to that feedback, and as a result, Today I'm announcing that we're changing the way the biosecurity protection levy is calculated to make it fairer and more transparent. The key feedback from industry on the proposed design included concerns about the equity and fairness of levy rates across different commodities, association and confusion with the existing agricultural levies system, and multiple imposition points for some commodities across the supply chain. Changes to the design of the levy have taken these issues into account. Rates will be set using a common and equitable basis for all industry sector products and goods and will not be set by reference to 2021, sorry, 2020-21 agricultural levy rates as was originally proposed. In addition, imposition of the levy will be tailored to individual products and goods to reduce multiple imposition points across a product supply chain. The policy intent, key policy parameters and contribution to Commonwealth funding remain the same as announced in the budget package.
1: That is the Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, addressing Senate estimates in Canberra this morning. So under the new levy, taxpayers will contribute around 44% of total biosecurity funding. Importers will contribute around 48%. Farmers contributing about 6% and Australia Post will contribute about 2%. In a statement they've just released, Grain Producers Australia says it welcomes the government's move to make adjustments to this proposed biosecurity tax. I say uh, the changes are welcome to address some of the many inequities raised by farmers and their representative groups. In a statement, the GPA chair, Barry Large, said, However, we need to see the actual detail of these changes to know whether these modifications have actually improved fairness and address address the significant fundamental flaws in this proposal. It is nine minutes past 12. Well a livestock consultant is urging farmers to disregard long-term forecasts when it comes to decision making or risk getting burnt again. Some farmers have directed anger towards the Bureau of Meteorology after its forecast of hot and dry conditions prompted them to sell off livestock they hadn't after the wet start to summer. Dr Graham Lane from AgriVet Business Consulting in Hamilton says while that sell-off is understandable long-term forecasts he says can't be relied on.
2: Well, we saw a lot of sell-off, particularly in New South Wales, where farmers had bad memories of the El Nino starting in 2019. Growers were selling a lot of stock at the time, more than usual, and certainly that seemed to be uh, the supply. Certainly in sale yard data was tending to suggest there was a lot of stock coming on, and that depressed price. The problem with the El Nino watch and alert and declaration, but particularly you know, they started talking about an El Nino watch from February, uh, that there's no skill published in predicting El Nino events that early in the season. And this is not hindsight. There were several uh, climate scientists at the time that warned that, that we don't have great skill in predicting El Nino events uh, that early in the season. Midwinter, yes, but not early In autumn, certainly not late summer.
4: So, if there were those warnings from others out there, why was it? Do you think that there was such a focus and fixation on, on firstly that El Nino watch and then that uh, declaration?
2: I believe there's a fair bit of um, credence in the bureau's forecasts that have been published regularly, and the fact that most news. Our uh, services, the Bureau have good media units and they, they make those forecasts very available, whereas a lone climate scientist saying a, a bit of caution about the accuracy of that forecast is battling a bit to get heard.
4: Given what you just said, what should individual farmers make of that and what how should they frame their, their long-term decision-making in, in relation to the the long-term outlooks before them?
2: Well, the message to farmers I'd certainly provide would be to ignore the Bureau for Seasonal Forecast because the public skill level of them is very low.
4: Is it a difficult one, though, for livestock producers who've been through drought before? They, they want to get ahead of the next drought and uh, sell off livestock they don't want to carry or try and carry through a drought. So, so they wanted to be proactive in that sense, But but you're saying that... They can't rely on the long-term forecasting information?
2: I'm definitely saying they can't rely on the long-term forecasting information. If you look at the published in comparisons with what they predict versus what actually happens, the skill level is very low. Unfortunately, the skill level needs to be high for farmers to make money out of these forecasts. So otherwise, they're just playing Russian roulette by following these forecasts, and might as well play it without the forecasts. <laughs> I mean, if, if, so for example, you need to have about a skill level of 35% in terms of accuracy to, with these forecasts to actually, make meaningful financial decisions out of them. That skill level was calculated by uh, Tel and that paper was published some time ago, but still stands today that you need to have good levels of accuracy of your forecast to be able to have confidence in making profitable decisions as a result of acting on the forecast. The Well, Vizadell calculated the skill level at that time was about 2% for the Bureau for seasonal forecasts. and that's a long way from 35%. Since that time, they have changed their uh, forecasting methodology slightly, and they have also got a brand new, the biggest supercomputer in the Southern Hemisphere. But the problem is, if you just look at last year, they forecast a low probability of achieving median rainfall in autumn, winter, and spring that skill level is low still of these forca- uh, forecasts without having to do very clever statistics. It's clear that these forecasts are not working well.
4: What should both uh, private forecasters, the Bureau, and also specifically the Bureau's new uh, ag unit focus on in trying to provide farmer specific forecasting information
2: I think it 's fine for them to do those forecasts and keep experimenting, but they should be published as experimental forecasts, not forecasts that people should make business decisions on. further, they should publish what statistically is most likely to happen
4: from the, your clients and the people you speak to graham what 's the sentiment out there toward the bureau toward long term forecasts and how will people's approach to those forecasts differ in the future after this the experience of this this spring and summer
2: Sadly, people want to hear a forecast. They want to know what's going to happen. <laughs> they don't like uncertainty, and I understand that. But, I mean, you know, that's that's the farming game. And uh, I look forward to having accurate forecasts, but at the moment we don't have accurate forecasts. Um, so for farmers who, you know, certainly like to hear a forecast, I think the replacement of that forecast with a more probabilistic approach would be a lot more helpful for them.
1: That was Dr. Graham Lane from AgriVit Business Consulting, and he was speaking there to Angus Verley.
0: You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: Well, FutureFeed, the group that holds the global rights to asparagopsis, has released a report on progress towards commercialisation. Asparagopsis, it's a red seaweed native to Australia that the CSIRO research showed could reduce methane emissions from cattle. FutureFeed CEO Alex Baker said nine companies have been licensed to produce it around the world in a few different ways.
5: No one grew asparagus as we started this exercise. So, the licensees have had to really develop de novo methods and techniques for cultivating and developing this at significant scale. And so, they've made um, really good progress. There's a range of different technologies that have been developed on a proprietary basis by um, a number of the licensees. There's also approaches being made in the ocean growing sense. So, people are still looking at growing in the ocean. Growing it on a terrestrial basis and then also growing it in a more biotechnological basis, which is looking at using photobioreactors. So there's a real coverage in terms of the cultivation. And each of those technologies have direct paths to significant scale into the millions of liters of, of cultivation of the seaweed. So,
6: what, what do you think we'll get up first, and where will we see it coming from?
5: Yeah, I, I, I think we'll see it out of the um, out of the licensees uh, cultivation techniques, which will be you know terrestrial, land based uh, methodologies using tanks, raceways, and and other things where they've adopted it from existing technologies in the algal, other algal technology spaces. So I think that's where we'll see it. And then I do think um, we'll see, you know, increased supply come from both the nation base and as well as then the, um, the biotech uh, approaches.
6: And what about um, asparagopsis compared to other products on the market? Because the Dutch have had the running on this, haven't they? They're, they're kind of, with their product Bovea, it's really been out there for quite some time now
5: yeah absolutely. And the Dutch probably started a decade even before this Baragopsis technology um was even invented. so I mean they've been at this nearly twenty years um so they've definitely got a um a leading start. That's been really actually very helpful for us to understand how regulators are seeing the space, um particularly on a on a global basis, looking at the you know large markets in Europe and the US or the Americas broadly. So uh... but are you
6: coming to the party late, do you think like what are the, what are the What's the I potential for actually the selling the product once it's
5: yeah, no, I developed? I think um, there is there's a significant efficacy difference between what we see in terms of reduction of methane by feeding asparagopsis compared to the utilisation of both So I think that we do have an equal, uh, in fact, better chance of um, providing greater levels of um, abatement of methane in, in the different um, animal systems.
6: But there was some concern about... Handling asparagopsis, wasn't there. That it was toxic at some level.
5: Um, at, at you know the way we've um, formulated and looked at the feeding amounts. So we've spent a significant amount of research um, and uh, you know commercial research to establish. Uh, their feeding amounts, which are very, very small relative to the overall feed that's given to an animal on a daily basis. And at that level, it's very, very safe for both the handlers uh, and the animals as well. So
6: so no, one of the recent trials was showing that the reductions in emissions was quite effective up to a certain point. But when you push beyond a certain level of of using the asparagopsis, it, it potentially could dive again. So does the animal adjust and then the emissions go up again?
5: so what we 've seen um, one of the longest um, or longitudinal studies that we 've seen there was no adaption um, to the uh, supplement across the the time period, and we 've also seen that across all the other studies which were um, slightly shorter so I mean, the, at the moment we 've fed across you know seventy three to three hundred days, the evidence is we 're seeing that there 's no ad- adaptation at the levels that we 've um, dialed into, and that 's really the important thing that we 've really established a an amount that is effective um, to achieve an 80% reduction you know, within the, the beef feedlot setting. And then we'll continue to look at dairy uh, as we develop more data and, and positions around formulation.
1: That is Future Feed CEO Alex Baker there. And he said, work on a carbon emissions methodology should be finalised in a couple of years. Clearing the way for producers to apply for official government carbon credits. A Future Feed has licensed partners here in South Australia, but also in Tasmania, WA and Victoria, as well as New Zealand, the United States, Europe and Canada. It's 20 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, five cattle have died from anthrax in Victoria's northeast and the affected property is north of Sheppenden. It's been quarantined and Agriculture Victoria says the carcasses will be destroyed, while remaining cattle on on the property are being vaccinated. Victoria's Deputy Chief Veterinarian Officer Dr Cameron Bell says anthrax can affect livestock from Victoria right up to Queensland. His staff will be conducting surveillance in the northeast of Victoria. They haven't ruled out vaccinating other livestock in the area. Agvic
7: staff responding to the detection um, of anthrax on a single beef property that's um, in the Shepparton region. We received the reports on Thursday afternoon and to date uh, five cattle deaths have been recorded on the property. Uh, but thank the early reporting by the, the owner and, and the owner's um, veterinary practitioner, AgVIC was able to undertake the necessary steps to control the spread of infection. And, and, and since that initial notification, um we've quarantined the property and and undertaken a number of measures to try and um contain the spread. Um, all the livestock on the on the affected property have now been vaccinated, and carcasses um, are in the process of being disposed of by burning, and the contaminated sites where the carcasses were are being um, disinfected. So, they're really key um, response activities that AgVIC um, undertake, and we're certainly well practiced. Given the um, number of times we, we've seen anthrax, particularly in recent decades, what, what's also important here beyond the, the boundaries of the affected property are uh, to um, undertake surveillance. And uh, Agriculture Victoria staff have been contacting livestock producers in the surrounding area, just checking in with them, um, raising awareness, checking if there's any unusual deaths occurring, and undertaking risk assessments for their particular situations. And where um, there is a, um, an assessment made and um, and a risk determined, then vaccination may be undertaken on, on livestock of those properties. And we do use um, vaccination in the face of an outbreak, but also um, as a follow-up, particularly in these higher risk areas. Anthrax is a um, disease caused by a bacterium. It's quite unique in the... the can survive in the soil for decades by forming um, spores. And it's a disease that can affect broad range of animals, but typically in Victoria, we see it affecting uh, cattle and sheep. Um, it, it does present a low risk to humans, with the greatest risk being those who um, handle dead livestock, such as farmers, vets, and, and knackery workers. But it is a, um, an, an infection that we do see from time to time and, and that's because of this um, unique feature of it to develop spores and survive for a long time and then um, infect animals under
6: certain conditions. There's an anthrax belt, isn't there, Cameron Bell, in, uh, in Australia up and down the east coast. Is that the only places that you see anthrax cases though?
7: You're right about that um, anthrax belt, and probably representing historical movements of cattle over the last um, sort of hundred plus years. No, certainly in Victoria historically, we've had to ride across the state more so, typically in and in, in, in recent decades in northern Victoria. Um, but really, it, it's a it's an important reminder that you know any unexplained sudden deaths anywhere in Victoria should be. Um, investigated and have anthrax ruled out
6: can you just explain why uh, you know vaccination isn't something that just all animals get in terms of anthrax in this area why it's used as a response
7: yeah look what we tend to do is use it um, in in the face of the response and then for a number of years afterwards yeah look it's a good question it it probably comes down to practicalities um, costs, etc um but but certainly um producers do have have the option of of pursuing vaccination in, in you know those higher risk situations um if, if they wish wish to do so um it, it's certainly an effective vaccine um you know we, we don't have treatments per se and and really vaccination in these sort of high risk situations and and controlling it in the face of an outbreak um it, it's a very useful tool.
1: That is Victoria's Deputy Chief Veterinarian Officer, Dr. Cameron Bell, and he was speaking there to Warwick Long. You're with Selena Green. Time to head off to the Weather Bureau. John Fisher is our forecaster today. Hello, John.
8: Good morning, Selena. Well, afternoon.
1: Yeah, afternoon. Uh, and what is the story for the weather across the state today?
8: Yeah, so look, uh, we're continuing to see uh, a change move across the state, so uh, that cool change moved across kind of western and southern coastal uh, parts uh, late uh, yesterday, um, but uh, kind of didn't push too far inland, so it was still kind of a warm and, and a little bit humid night for, for many parts, but uh, yeah, that change is continuing to, to move uh, north-eastwards today, uh, so currently situated uh, probably through that northern uh, Spencer Gulf area across the, the mid-north and, and out through the the Murraylands. Now, ahead of that change, uh, we're we're seeing some pretty uh, hot and and, and strong uh, northwesterly winds, which is uh, generating some uh, extreme fire danger for the Mid-North, the Riverland uh, and the Murraylands there and even a chance of a, a thunderstorm as well through those uh, areas. Uh, so, you know, keeping a close eye on that because uh, obviously the, that brings the, the risk of uh, some, some dry lightning and, and, uh, and bushfires, which uh, has already been realised across Victoria with some, some earlier thunderstorms and, and fire danger there. So keeping a close eye on, on that aspect uh, at the moment. But uh, yeah, look, generally we are going to see uh, that milder uh, southerly continue to, to move uh, inland and be a bit gusty through those northern parts of the state as well. Uh, this evening, and and that could even uh, uh, generate a little bit of uh, raised dust. You know, it's been probably uh, a good you know uh, month or so for many parts of the state since we've had uh, any reasonable rainfall. So uh, soils are certainly starting to uh, to dry out. Um, But, uh, yeah, look, uh, those temperatures ahead of that change, you know, Renmark's already hit 40 uh, today, um, and and up around the Wyala area, that change was probably an hour or two delayed, so actually got up to 38 degrees there, um, which was, yeah, well above uh, forecast. Um, So, uh, but but as we move through the day, um, yeah, as I mentioned, those southerly winds continuing to extend pretty much throughout the state. uh, And... As we move into uh, Wednesday, we're, we're looking at um, yeah, pretty much dry conditions uh, continuing. So this, yeah, it is a, a dry change moving across the state. Uh, and some of those areas that are, that are seeing those hot conditions today are probably going to drop by a good 10 or 15 degrees uh, as we move uh, into Wednesday. Um, and, and just a, a slight reduction in those temperatures uh, where we've already seen that uh, that cool change through the western and southern parts. But Wednesday's probably going to be the uh, coolest uh, day of the the, the week. Um, And then from then on, we're just in this really uh, stable pattern, once again, similar to, uh, you know, what we have been uh, before this change uh, with uh, you know, a series of uh, either high pressure centres or, or ri- a ridge of high pressure across the south uh, kind of keeping uh, any frontal systems at bay and, and that means that we're just gradually going to uh, warm up uh, through the week so um, by the time we get through to around Friday anywhere but those uh, southern coastal fringes will be uh, back into the, the low 30s uh, and, and as we move through the, the weekend Selena we're, we're looking at uh, kind of mid to high 30s uh, across many, many centres and probably going to continue uh, even into uh, early next week. So it could be a, a kind of protracted um, period of some heat uh, as we move through the latter part of this week uh, and into early next week. And, and yeah, no, no rainfall um, in sight uh, either, Selena.
1: All right. Thanks for that, John. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. John Fisher there from the Weather Bureau. So taking a look at the forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow. The upper western, a mostly sunny day, a medium chance of showers in the far east, a slight chance elsewhere, and there's a chance of a thunderstorm. Northwest to northeasterly winds around twenty to thirty Ks now. They get a ten southeast to southwesterly twenty five to thirty five Ks now in the early morning. Overnight temps will get down to between 19 and 24 degrees. Daytime temperatures will reach between 31 and 36 degrees. For the lower western district, mostly sunny, medium chance of showers also in the far east in the early morning, but near zero chance of rain elsewhere. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the early morning. Southerly winds about 20 to 30 k's an hour. They're going to drop back to around 15 to 20 in the late evening. Overnight temperatures around 13 to 18 degrees and those daytime temps will hover around 30 degrees it is coming up to half past 12 here on the south australian country hour up in this next half an hour if you are wondering what on earth is going on with the plan for varroa mite how will australia be tackling it how much will be spent on that we'll stick around we'll get an update on that very very shortly
0: Listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au/slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green.
1: Hey, good afternoon. Hello, a lot of you are concerned about the spread of Varroa mite across parts of Australia and what this could all mean for our bee populations. Well, there is an update coming to you shortly on how that's going to be managed and how much Australia will be spending on that fight, so stick around. Also coming up, there's a lot of love out there for mustard dogs and the winner of the most recent season has been crowned. We have this amazing litter of young dogs And one particularly has risen to the
9: occasion by a very close call to become the champion mustard dog.
1: And that team is. Is. Well, I won't spoil it quite yet if you haven't caught up, but you will hear from the winner before the hour is up. So, spoiler alert. First, though, we need to get news headlines from Chris McLaughlin. Good afternoon, Chris.
10: Good afternoon, Selena. Correspondence reveals Australia rebuffed a United States request for military support in the Red Sea two years ago, just before the last federal election. The Albanese government's faced sustained criticism for not agreeing to a US request for a warship to help respond to Houthi rebel attacks in the Red Sea. Details have emerged of a similar request made to Australia in early 2022 during the Morrison government. The federal government's changing the way farmers will contribute to funding of national biosecurity services. The levy was announced in last year's federal budget and is expected to come into effect on July the 1st. Farmers will instead contribute to biosecurity funding according to industry value. A coroner's inquest has begun into the death of a man who repeatedly sought assistance from the Royal Adelaide Hospital before he died in 2020. 23-year-old Sashinta Badagotagay attended its emergency department three times in the five days before his death. Queensland researchers have finalised new national sun exposure guidelines tailored to Australia's diverse population. The guidelines identify three skin-type groups and for the first time specify the optimal amount of time in the sun for each. More ABC News at one o'clock.
1: Thanks, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Well, yes, first today, an update on the fight against the bee-killing parasite Varroa mite. The National Management Group for Varroa Destructor has endorsed a transition to management plan, which will see the shareable costs of the response revised from a limit of $136 million to a limit of 100 million. The revised response plan was developed by the Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests. And this all comes nearly five months after Australia gave up on efforts to eradicate the parasite. Now, this 24-month plan, unanimously agreed to by the NMG, will include the deployment of more than 30 Varroa development officers across the country to prevent the spread of Varroa mite into other states, as well as the employment of a pollination industry coordinator. The Australian Honeybee Industry Councils welcomed this plan. Its CEO Danny Lefever is speaking here to Kim Honan.
11: Yeah, 26 affected parties at the National Management Group, the NMG, agreed. Uh, on Friday afternoon with a couple of outstanding votes to come in over the weekend, which have all now been received. So we have a unanimous agreement finally.
12: And so what does this transition to management um, plan entail? Because this is a, you know, a revised plan that you know, industry has been waiting on since, what, the 19th of September?
11: Yeah, it's been a long time in the making. It's been quite a, a big negotiation. Um, It's got a lot of parties involved with a lot of needs and wants and and a lot of people uh, wanting to spend as little as possible now that we're unable to eradicate as well. So it's been a lot of negotiation over the last four months to try and get it to the point where it is now. And it's still not a perfect plan, um, but we're able to get agreement, which is great.
12: Do, Do you know how much the eradication efforts actually cost to get to this point?
11: Yeah, we won't know until we have the final costs come in from DPI.
12: Okay, so what does this uh, new response plan entail?
11: So the response plans are really focused on education and extension, really getting those opportunities out to beekeepers right across the country um, to make sure that they're comfortable with the management of varroa and understand the pest, not only uh, in the areas where the pest is already uh, established through New South Wales, but across every jurisdiction. We want to make sure that the beekeepers are comfortable in being able to do the surveillance to find it. Uh, but once found it, comfortable in what management options they need to deploy, um, and how can they monitor and keep continual vigil looking out for those pests?
12: And what's the the time frame for this plan? Is it 12 months or 24?
11: uh so we're, we we worked really hard as zabik to lobby uh, all the affected parties um, to try and get an extension so uh, for the first time, a transition the management plan is is being granted to go longer than the the um, stipulated twelve months uh, and we've been able to push it out to twenty four months but the activities themselves will be twelve month activities, but we are not bound by that time frame, so we can make sure that our beekeepers uh, will have access to these resources and training and um, extension officers right through the whole season.
12: What are some examples of some of those activities that uh, beekeepers would be able to access during this time period?
11: So the our College uh, through the DPI are establishing uh, workshops, face-to-face workshops, a full day, uh, which will take beekeepers right through the whole process of role, including the biology, the treatment options, how to look for its surveillance monitoring. Now, that will be rolled out, over 100 of those right across the country in every jurisdiction, um, which will give beekeepers the ability to attend face-to-face meetings, but in addition to that, it will be um, online content, fact sheets, videos, a whole raft of educational material that will be available for beekeepers so that they can access it and learn the best way that they want to learn as well. Um, To support that education uh, uh, campaign, there'll be extension officers. So extension officers, or they're being called uh, VDOs, Railroad Development Officers, uh, will be in every jurisdiction uh, across Australia to help beekeepers. um, If they're not quite picking it up through the education components that are available to work one-on-one with those beekeepers to develop their management plans, understand the pest, look at what might best suit them in terms of treatment in their areas, and particularly in those states where we don't have ROWA, help support those beekeepers, set up some industry surveillance programs where we can have a network of sentinel hives looking for that early detection so that our our beekeepers can be best prepared um, for when it gets to their... To their areas.
12: So how many VDOs will be employed?
11: Um, Well the budget that will allow for just over 30 across the whole country um, but there's some flexibility in that so it's on a needs basis depending on, on how much those states or jurisdictions or the beekeepers in those states want and need that support.
12: So from your understanding has the cost of the response been revised down?
11: So the way the response works and the way we budget for the response is we provide a, a upper limit, a maximum that DPI can spend. And as they approach that upper limit, they have to come back to the consultative committees to talk through that budget. So we know that given we stopped short of eradication and the previous response plan was going out for three years. There has been significant cost savings. So the previous upper limit of $136 million cost shareable, which is the amount shared between the parties, not including the cost to the DPI, the lead agency, has now been revised down revised down to $100 million as an upper limit to get us through the next 24 months with the, with the uh, transition management plan.
1: That is Danny Lefebvre, who is the CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council, I'm speaking there to Kim Honan. It's 22 minutes to one. Well, South Australia has a new Chief Veterinary Officer. It's an important role for our state. Animal disease and biosecurity risks are a huge threat to our thriving and valuable agriculture and aquaculture industries. So let's meet her. Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Elisa Spark. Welcome to the Country Hour.
13: Oh, thank you, Selena. Thank you very much for having me.
1: And congratulations on the appointment uh, to the new role, but it is a role that you have been acting in for a little while now? Yeah, look, I've been acting uh, in the role since October, um, so which has been a, a
13: great um, experience uh, in that time. And, and from March, I will take on the role permanently.
1: Give us a bit of an idea of your background. You have worked for the department for, for quite a number of years now.
13: Yeah, that's right. So um, I started with the department in 2012 and and prior to coming to PERSA I worked in
1: private veterinary
13: practice after I graduated from Murdoch University in Western Australia. So yeah, look, I started in 2012 um, and I've been really fortunate uh, in that time um, since 2012 to hold a variety of roles uh, predominantly in the biosecurity division um, and that's where I started as a district veterinary officer in the disease surveillance team and that role um, had me looking after um, a range of state regions from essentially Kangaroo Island through the Fleurieu and across to the York Peninsula Um,
14: and it was during that
13: role that I managed the enhanced abattoir surveillance program for the sheep industry. Um, After uh, my time in the disease surveillance team, I then went on to work um, for the fisheries and aquaculture division, so still with PERSA, but changing tact and working for um, the aquatic livestock industries and still worked in the biosecurity space, but predominantly on biosecurity planning for land-based abalone farms and also oyster hatcheries um, and also developing um, surveillance programs for key oyster industry diseases. Um, most uh, notably the Pacific Oyster Mortality Syndrome. So um, following my time at Fisheries and Aquaculture, I, I then moved back to um, Biosecurity Division and, and worked in a policy um, role. So first of all um, in Animal Biosecurity and Welfare Policy and uh, then most recently in the Office of the Chief Executive um, and while not role specific as such, um, during my time at persa I've also been involved in a number of emergency responses from bushfires to floods, um, fruit fly and, and also um, animal disease responses.
1: Well, so what, <laughs> do, you, do you remember what drew you into veterinary practice and, and particularly into the biosecurity area in the first place and what's driven your passion in that field?
13: Yeah, look, I think um, I've certainly always been really animal-focused, right, from, from when I was quite young. Um, and while I was at university, um, I had a, an incredible friend and mentor, Dr. Brad McCormick, who works for the West Australian uh, Ag Department, essentially. And he was probably really um, pivotal in um, shaping uh, what I wanted to do, I really um, developed a keen interest in that type of work um, thought it was really important to obviously work in private practice um, initially after graduating um, to get some experience in that space but yeah really um, it's, it's just been a passion working uh, at a sort of a, at a, a level that um, has an impact across across industries
1: now, the role of Chief veterinary officer, what does it actually entail? what does it cover
13: yeah sure so um The Chief Veterinary Officer role is really a leadership role for the PERSA Animal Biosecurity Team. And so this is a team of animal health professionals that are located right across the state. We've got around 40 um, animal health staff um, from Port Lincoln uh, all the way to Mount Gambier. Um, And it's an incredible team that works across a range of projects and, and programs. And Essentially the work is focused on anticipating, preparing for, um, detecting and responding to disease threats and really importantly um, this work supports market access for South Australia's premium livestock and livestock products. So the team that the Chief Veterinary Officer role leads um, is composed of you know, veterinary uh, specialist epidemiologists who analyse disease threats and, and guide decision making, um, of veterinary technical experts who develop state surveillance and response policy and also a number of regional animal health staff who work with regional communities um, to improve on-farm biosecurity, to assist with disease investigations, um, preparedness activities for animal disease outbreaks. And, They also deliver um, disease management programs and and regulatory and compliance activities. So that's the other part of the role is um, around the the legislative responsibility. So the Chief Veterinary Officer also holds the the role of Chief Inspector of Stock under the Livestock Act. And the Livestock Act is the legislation that contains a range of powers which essentially um, are used to support industry uh, in the state to prevent instructions of disease, uh, to respond to and also manage or eradicate disease incursions. Um, And then, of course, there's chief veterinary officers in each state and territory uh, and also the Commonwealth. And so together, um, the chief veterinary officers work nationally um, at a national level to deliver policy and and technical and regulatory advice and and really that strategic national leadership uh, on animal health and biosecurity matters.
1: There are obviously quite a few fronts in the fight against disease outbreak here in South Australia and and biosecurity heading into this role permanently. Do you have a, a focus or some priorities that you have identified?
13: Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. And I'm sure um, your listeners would be aware of the increased risk that um, the state and the country is facing, um, essentially with the occurrence of foot and mouth disease, lumpy skin disease, African swine fever in our northern neighbours. So with that increased risk, um, certainly emergency animal disease preparedness is, is really key. Um, and while these diseases, importantly, aren't in Australia, um, they've they would have a devastating impact um, if an incursion was to occur. So it's really essential that re- we remain focused um, on this preparation work and, and also working closely with industry. And, and that's really key um, and a key priority is partnering with and, and really understanding and supporting the key priorities of industry. And this is at both a, a state and national level um, so that we can really effectively work together on our our shared responsibility Um, and of course you know ultimately I'll be focused on ensuring that the delivery of the animal biosecurity programs and the work of the team really go to support PERS's core purpose which is to advance the prosperity um, and also the sustainability of of the state's primary industries and our regional communities and and this is our reason for what we do each and every day um, in the really important work that we deliver.
1: Well, Dr Spark, thank you very much for joining us again and congratulations on your appointment to the role. I'm sure there'll be many opportunities to speak on the Country Hour in the, uh, the days and months, years going forward. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much, Selena. That was South Australia's new Chief Veterinary Officer, Dr Elisa Spark.
0: This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
1: And it is Selena Green with you today and it's 14 minutes to one. When you think of the types of materials that a wedding dress is traditionally made out of, you probably don't think wool, but Nikki Atkinson did. She is the founder and designer of Horrocks Vale Collections in the Flinders Ranges, which creates wedding dresses made from merino wool. And she is one of three recently announced South Australian finalists for the AgriFutures Rural Women's Award. Now, that award recognises the essential role women play in rural industries, businesses and communities. And Ms Atkinson told our reporter Kate Higgins that she hopes her selection will increase the recognition of Australia's merino wool industry. To be honest,
15: I was prompted by somebody else. They contacted me after they saw Def Trithui in her dress that I created for her at the Agri Futures Awards and she emceed it last year. And yeah, so they saw my dress that I designed for her. We had a conversation and, and she sort of prompted me to apply. So that was, yeah, it was a push from someone else. I'd just like to say that now that I'm in this situation, which I'm very honoured to be in, that um, it's an amazing opportunity for, you know, with these awards, it really shines a light on rural women. And it's an incredible platform to showcase what our passions are and help celebrate and empower rural women because we're not just business people, we're mothers, we're usually working on the land, doing, you know, other stuff behind the scenes. Um, So it's really nice to be recognised
16: so the prize is $15,000. What would you do with the winnings?
15: My plan would be I have a bridal expo that I have on my wish list to go to, which is in Harrogate in England, to be able to showcase Horrocks collections and my wool wedding dresses over at Harrogate. And that's attended by about 8,000 people from all around the world. So they get people visiting from Dubai, America, Canada, Europe, you name it. So, yeah, that's one of the things I really would love to do with it so that I can showcase Australian marina
16: wool internationally and shine a bright light on what our beautiful farmers create. And what about the professional development and networking opportunities? Oh, that would be
15: sensational. I mean, money can't put, you know, anything on on what that's worth because, I mean, for a small business, it's a forever changing landscape and I always feel, you know, I'm always learning something new all the time. Even though I've been in business for over 25 years, there's more to learn and more to see and it's, like I said, it's forever changing. So that'd
16: be incredible to be able to tap into all of that as well. Have you seen an increase in demand for wool fibre bridal attire? Well,
15: my project's only quite new. This is something that I've been wanting to do for over 20 years. So um, I feel like I'm re-educating people because people just say, the first thing they say when they hear what I do, they say, oh my God, that will be fantastic for winter. Well, actually, no, it's perfect for summer because it's temperature controlling. So if you're wearing a wedding dress that's in wool on a 40 degree day, you're not going to have sweat dripping down your back like you would in a polyester dress. And the other myth that, you know, people always say was, oh, I can't wear wool because it's scratchy, itchy. Well, it's no longer that scratchy, itchy fibre. It's a beautiful, soft, incredibly hypoallergenic fibre that we can actually wear all day long and for days and days without it smelling. <laughs> so it's sort of, yeah, I'm, what I'm doing is groundbreaking. It's not something that's um, been done before.
16: And how do you think becoming a finalist, how might this recognition support the wool industry in Australia?
15: I think any recognition that the wool industry can get is amazing because I feel like our farmers work so hard. They work bloody hard and it takes generations. It's not something you can create overnight. It actually takes generations to produce that fine fibre. It's something you constantly got to be working on. So I feel like any light that can be shone on our rural community, farmers and families um, in the the wool sector would be um, incredible. And I, I really... We'd love to see wool everywhere, like Australian marina wool everywhere. Like imagine walking into a bridal shop in London and there's an Australian bridal gown out of one of, one of my garments in wool.
16: And you're also on a a wool producing property yourself. How's things going at the the primary production end for you guys?
15: Um, It's been a tough couple of years because 2022 is an extremely wet year. So our poor flock had to wait 16 months before they got shorn. So that led to all sorts of different things that, you know, happened behind the scenes because obviously yield matter goes up because it's not shorn at the right time of the year. Um, A little bit of flyblown issues as well because it was January by the the time we got them shorn so you know it was the perfect as somebody said to me the perfect storm but unfortunately you know those perfect storms create you know having heaps of rain but you know they do create other issues so yeah 2022 was one we'd prefer to forget Um and unfortunately that was the year that wool prices were amazing but yeah we just didn't quite be able to reap in what we should have and then last year um was quite a good year I mean we yeah, on the on the land it was great. We had plenty of rain, but unfortunately we just didn't have enough wool because then it meant that our sheep were shorn with t- 10 months of wool instead of 12 months of wool. So
1: there's always something, isn't there? That's Nikki Atkinson from Horrocksvale Collections speaking with Kate Higgins. Now The South Australian winner will be announced on March 26th and they'll represent the state at the National AgriFutures Rural Women's Award gala dinner later in the year. And you'll hear from the third and final South Australian finalist, Susie Williams from the Fleurieu Peninsula, on tomorrow's show. Did you catch the season finale of ABC TV's Mustardogs program on Sunday night? This year's winner was... Border Collie, Buddy, and his trainer Zoe Miller from Catherine in the Northern Territory. And Zoe and Buddy were on ABC News 24 with Lisa Miller.
9: Tell me, how does it feel for you? Is there a sense of relief that we can now finally talk about this? Because I know your granddad was worried about accidentally spilling the beans.
17: Yes, he's, he's been worried the whole way through. We tried to explain to him about ABC Eye View and that it was okay. <laughs> uh, and he, he still didn't quite grasp that. And... Um, so the whole way, he's been just, I think, it's, I think it'll be a relief for him, actually, more than me. Listen, a lot
9: of people were contacting me very worried about Buddy during the episodes because he got very sick and he was allergic to his food. He was throwing up all the time. There was, at one point, we were worried Buddy might actually die.
17: Yeah, it was um it was a really challenging period. There was a lot happening there and it was super stressful. Um he was in and out of the vets, he'd come back home and I would think I was on top of it and that he was um climbing again in his health and then it'd be a revisit back to the vets. Uh and he got extremely skinny. And uh it's a worry once they once they drop down to that, even just battling the heat and everything up there to get him back to weight. Um, it was it was it was tough. Yeah.
9: A great series this time round, again, uh, three women, you and Lily and Scylla, and so many people just thrilled to see young women there on screen. There'll be a lot of them watching this morning, actually, Zoe. Did you get that same kind of feedback? Have you got a message for them this morning?
17: Yeah, I've had, um, it's been a really positive feedback experience um, and I'm really thankful to that. A lot of people reaching out with really kind words. So to all those watching, thank you. Um, You know, I stepped into this uh, as a participant um, to be able to promote the ag industry and and our love for animals and what we do and good stockmanship and um, to be able to portray that. And i just like to say I think, you know, I feel very humbled that, uh, you know, of, of there is so many amazing women in the in, in any industry um and and just not even just women but a lot of good stockmen um and so I feel very humbled to be able to be one of those people to demonstrate that uh, to audiences really
1: and Zoe Miller from Catherine in the Northern Territory and her dog Buddy they were winner of season 2 of Mustard Dogs on ABC TV if you missed it on Sunday night don't worry You can catch it on ABC iview. Well, finally today, Australian shoppers will start to see more locally grown cotton products in stores, even as cotton production production drops worldwide. Megan Hughes has the story.
18: The Australian cotton industry has broken national records for its production in recent years. And while it's slowed this season, the industry's work to market itself as a sustainable fibre option has paid off. Industry body Cotton Australia has been working with brands and retailers for the past decade to encourage them to make their products with cotton grown in Australia. CEO Adam Kay says brands can apply to use a special Australian cotton mark on their products. The
11: brands, they do their market research you know Australians are very patriotic. They want to if they can't buy Australian made. Well, the next best thing's Australian grown, and you know the Australian grown product. And you'll see it um, in a lot of the brands and retailers where you can buy clothes made out of Australian cotton. It's uh, it's really resonating with
14: the Australian public.
18: So cotton grown in Australia is sent through cotton gins to be cleaned and baled before being exported to spinning mills in countries like Vietnam where it's turned into yarn which can be made into thread or fabric. Now Cotton Australia said they've had a 91% increase in licensed products bearing the mark, totaling almost 29
11: million items. The work we're doing with brands and retailers it's giving them confidence to use Australian cotton because it's, it's traceable, it's sustainably produced and those brands and retailers, they, they want to be part of that and so they're then you know demanding that from their spinning mills. So again, this is pulling Australian cotton through the supply chain.
18: Cotton is Australia's fourth most valuable agricultural export, according to the Department of Agriculture, with last season's export crop valued at $4.9 billion, an increase on 120% on the previous year. This year's forecast cotton crop, however, is down to 4.5 million bales, one million fewer than last year's. It's down across the world, with China and America also experiencing crop declines greater than 10%. Conditions were dry during the planting window in Australia, and some growers did not have access to a water allocation to irrigate their crop, like central Queensland grower Robert McDonald.
19: Well, the water came along a bit late sort of thing, but yeah, it's not looking too bad now. Well, it was pretty dry at the start, but um, yeah, the, the um, rain came along the river run.
18: And when you planted in September, did you have a full allocation?
19: No, we didn't, no, just um, I think we started off with 0%, yeah, for a bit, yeah. Just what we had in dams and storages. Yeah, once the water came, we've been pretty much non-stop watering, yeah.
18: And how has the crop gone this year?
19: Yeah, pretty good, yeah. Like, lost a bit of fruit with the rain and cloudy weather and that, but hasn't been too bad, I suppose. Yeah, it has been very um, humid and, yeah, like the cloudy weather and that definitely hasn't helped, but... That's what it is, I suppose.
18: (laughs) Mr McDonald is also a contract picker harvesting on other farms. He said growers were deciding whether or not to keep their crop in the ground longer to get a better yield. He says they're just weeks away from harvest starting.
19: They've been sort of delayed a bit with the wet weather and that. Yeah, we're still waiting to hear, but yeah, hopefully get going next month or something. Like The planting's been down a bit, but um, just because of water issues and that, but still a reasonable amount's going in.
1: That is Central Queensland grower Robert McDonald. Ending that report from Megan Hughes. It's two minutes to one. The news is coming up soon, and so is Nikolai Balharts on your radio for afternoons. Hello, Nikolai.
14: Good afternoon.
1: Oh, we we're to Tuesday. It's <laughs> halfway through February already. Where did that go?
14: I know it does feel a little bit like that, doesn't it? All yeah. of these things are happening very, very quickly.
1: What's happening on your show today?
14: Well, do you ever get the feeling that? Eyes are upon you, and someone's watching you when you're out and about.
1: All that feeling, yes.
14: Yeah, well, maybe there's a a bit bit of legitimacy to that because there are more and more um, surveillance cameras around these days. You know, they kind of used to be in banks and maybe a couple of big businesses, but that was about it. But now they've become so much more affordable, and you know, people who are worried about security uh, and and people breaking into their house uh, get the cameras. But there are questions around the legalities of uh, if you have a camera poking out onto the street, is that okay? What about a camera that you have overlooking a neighbour's backyard? Are you allowed to do that? I mean... I imagine most people would say, you probably shouldn't do it. Well, I wouldn't
1: like to think my neighbours are filming. Not that I'm doing anything interesting, but still.
14: are you allowed to? So we're going to look at that because a lot more of these cameras are around these days.
1: This is a very good question and Mm. I'll be very interested to hear what the answers are. Nikolai Bellharts, he'll be with you for afternoons. Uh, Those stories and much, much more. Thanks for your company today. It's just going on 1 o'clock news time.
0: To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the app store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket.
9: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.